you're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I gotta tell you something, people. When I was a younger kid in my teens, there was something called the Columbia House Record Club. And there was a few other ones. And it was basically you would buy like 12 albums for a penny, and then you'd have to buy like seven in a, in a year and three years. And we were underage. So we just bought them and never fulfilled the commitment because people we knew said, hey, they're not like my older brother said, you don't have a credit report. But one of the albums I bought, my guest, uh, his group, but I, I get it. I got it for free. His group, it was his. It was his album. And I'll tell you something. What caught my eye about it, besides the great music, is his group had the best logo. I mean, people drew Kiss and they drew Yes because they're e- easy to draw. Right. This logo, though, people. This logo was so amazing, and I'm so happy to have him on. And my guest is David Jenkins. How you doing, David? Hey, Steve. Yeah, that logo is strong. It, it remains a. Str- you know, it remains a strong logo. Should have, we should have, we could have, we still could do some more behind it besides just music. I just think that, you know, it's a recognizable, real iconic kind of look. Well, you know what, you know what it was? I, I grew up in New Jersey and it's cold, you know, and you look at that and it's just, it's so inviting. It's like, you should, you're thinking yeah. of like good looking people on the beach drinking margaritas. It's escapism. It's total escapism, you know? Yeah. yeah. Now what happened? What happened when they uh, when it showed up in the movie Step Brothers? Well, that was kind of cool. Um, you know, I talked to the gal that was in the art department. Dixie manufactured that shirt, but um, it was a, it was pretty cool because we got a call from this promotion guy saying, "Is anybody working that? You guys should be you guys should be doing all kinds of stuff behind this, you know." And so. We hired the guy to to uh, see what he could do, and he he got us to, at the uh, the opening of the you know the party, the the, uh, the red carpet, and then the opening of the screening of the movie, and then the after screening party. And it was really cool to meet all the people that were involved in it. And John John C. Riley and Will Ferrell were were like just completely nice guys, you know, really really normal, fun. Introduced the band and and we played a few songs at the at the uh, party and the, it was just a real neat and you know what on the red carpet for a, for a couple of days uh, for a, a day before and a couple of days after I was the coolest guy on the planet to my twelve year old kid <laughs> because because I knew I knew Will Ferrell. Well, you know what's great about it is anyone who is, uh, I'm 55 now, but anyone who was a certain age, as soon as they saw that shirt when Will Ferrell's wearing it, you automatically identified. Oh, yeah. Definitely. That was kind of cool, huh? Yeah. So, so he, wore, he wore it for 10 minutes in the movie, which is I, great. <laughs> a lot of free advertising. Exactly. So, so you know, you've, you've had a great career. When did you get interested in music? Was it when, as you were a young kid or in high school? How oh, did yeah. you get involved? Yeah, when I was really young. Um, in fact, we had a pump organ when I was, like, I think, four or five years old, maybe, and uh, living in Michigan. And, and uh, But I couldn't reach the pedals and, and also play the keys. So my sister, who was younger than me, would be down there pumping the pedals, and I'd, I'd, I'd kind of, we take turns, right? And I, I would pick out melodies on the on the keyboard while she was pumping the pedals, which is funny. But yeah, early, early on, just got interested in music. Now, when did you start expanding on music past the pump organ? 
Well, you know, I did school band, and uh, um, and then in in high school, I got interested in guitar. Well, actually, I think, and for a lot of guys, I think it was the same. We saw the Beatles, right, on Ed Sullivan in my junior year of high school. I saw the Beatles, and and I thought, wow, I'll do that. <laughs> Let's just do that. And it was just exciting to see, you know, people playing guitar and writing rock songs and, and having fun with it. So that, that's the kind of thing that got me going on, on the whole thought of playing, you know, and then put little bands together throughout high school and college and then just kept going, you know. Now, where did you go to college? Vermont Junior College in, in uh, Cocoa Beach for a while and also Seminole uh, Community College in Lake Mary, Florida. Now, so you yeah. moved, I'm sorry, you moved from Michigan to Florida? Yeah. Yeah, Michigan to, to Illinois, to Wisconsin, to Florida. And then out of, when I was, just before I turned 18, I left uh, Florida for California with $4, a free ride, a, an amplifier and a guitar, and a suitcase full of cut clothes and not a clue what I was going to do when I got to California. <laughs> so I was I was just unbelievably lucky. The second day that I that I got to San Carlos, uh, well actually San Bruno, and then I wandered down into a music store in San Carlos, and a guy ran me through an audition that took about a minute. And I'd been playing guitar for a year, and he asked me to play a few things. And he he asked me if I could teach. I said sure, I could teach. I was seventeen years old, <laughs> and. Um, and uh, he said, fine, you can start tomorrow, move in with Mickey. Well, that was, that guy's name was Leonard Hart, and his son was Mickey Hart from the Grateful Dead. Although this was before Mickey joined the Grateful Dead. So Mickey and I had a one-bedroom apartment in San Carlos, and he taught drums, and I taught guitar. And I, you know, suddenly had a job the second day I was in California. Just amazing. So you, you, I mean, that's the thing. It's a stroke of luck, but you know, you there was something that was looking down on you. What? Totally. I mean, it, you know, it's one. Yeah. You hear these stories all the time. You know, that just someone goes, "Oh, I was just walking down the street and I bumped into somebody," and and next thing you know, things take off. So you're teaching guitar now. When do you decide to form a band? Well, um, I worked in that music store for a while. I met, I had different musicians in the. In, in the the, the uh, peninsula area that's, that's San Carlos South to uh, you know San Mateo and, and down into San Jose, but um, one of the bands that I that I got to know that used to come in the store all the time was a band called Moby Great. I don't know if you remember that, but they were a, a great San Francisco band back in the psychedelic era. And uh, but then I quit working at that store. And went to work in in Palo Alto at a store down there, and that's where I met my uh, my bandmates in the Pablo Cruz band. It was working in Palo Alto, and that was in '72, I think, um, maybe '71. Uh, and then we, yeah, and then we started playing together, but then in in, in different configurations, and then we put our band together in '73. 
amazing. When I think back on it, my God. Well, you know, it's 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 one of those things. I mean, it is a long time ago, but it's great that you know your music has withstood time. But now, when you joined the band, when you guys got the band together, what? direction did you guys want to go? Did you want to get gigs and play covers first, or were you going writing original music first? How did you uh, develop? Well, um, you know, we didn't have enough material to, to play all original music, so we did some covers, and we, you know, we were trying to figure out who we were, and, but everybody throw what they had into the, into the song list, and, you know, we'd get out and play. We just knew we liked playing together, and, uh, and then we started we, it was, we also did a lot of jamming back then. And, and out of those jams came some songs. And, and some, some of the songs, I mean, there's a couple of jams that happened back then of, uh, that turned into songs that we still play. Um, so it was, you know, it was an experimental thing that we were just, we were just playing because we wanted to play together. You know, we just liked playing, and and, and then it just, you know, one step after another started taking shape. And it really was a lot of luck involved, but there was also a lot of just desire to to play. So I guess it just formed, you know. So you're formed now. Now, who came up with the name? Um, we were discussing the name trying to think of a name and that name came out of a out of an LSD trip <laughs> that <laughs> sorry <laughs> true it's awesome <laughs> um, our keyboard player Corey and this other guy that we used to know um, you know I mean I, I, we And 
here we are. This is it. And we paid them, and the word, you know, we're still using it. It's a great logo. It is an amazing logo. I mean, as I said, you know, it's one of those things you just remember it. And, you know, it, yeah. it displays what your music is. You said, you know, I mean, you know, I think of your album Worlds Away. You know, that logo makes you feel like you're worlds away. Yeah, right, right. You know, it's funny. There was a company in France. I don't know if they were in Paris or someplace. A clothing company. And they stole that logo from us. And they, they, they used the same lettering, the same palm tree, all the same. They just took the letter I out. And they called their clothing company Pablo Cruz. <laughs> so what would you do? I don't know. If, well, you know, we didn't do anything. We should have. We should have. You know, I think we may have written him a cease and desist letter. Uh, but it was uh, it was definitely infringement of copyright. We um, I think they I think they ended. I don't think it's still. That was a long time ago. I haven't seen that that any any business around that for a long time. Now, how did you guys get your first record deal? Um, well, the first thing we did was, uh, you know, we were playing gigs all over San Francisco Bay Area, and then we were doing a showcase gig in San Francisco at a place called the Great American Music Hall, and a lawyer friend of ours brought a guy that was a, basically a stock trader but he wanted to get somehow get involved in the music business because he loved music. So he brought this guy uh, to the gig. And after the gig, they came back, you know, and said hi. And and uh, this guy said, you know, if you ever need anything, give me a call. I'd like to, like to get involved with you guys. Well, we called him the following Monday and said, yeah, let's get together. And he ended up being our manager for the whole, you know, the whole time. And he went on to be Huey Lewis's manager, too. And uh, he's he's still a good friend of ours, you know. Um, but that's so he's the one that you know started pounding the pavement to to, uh, to find a record deal for us. And we went to A and M, and and that's where we signed and and got it going with those guys. No. And it was a, it was a really exciting time, Steve. It was it was amazing to <clears throat> to go down to the A and M lot. You'd see famous people on the lot, you know, and it was the old Charlie Chaplin studio and, and uh, you know, uh, movie studio. And, it, and there was so much history down there that it was just just amazing to go into into the recording business as pretty young guys, put, put our best work forward and see what happened, you know. And, man, we got lucky. You know, we really, really did. Now, now, what was it like, you know, you said it was a great time. What was it like when you guys first went into the studio to record your first album? Were you scared? Were you excited? Was it a mixture of both? Because it's probably a big taking on from a guys who were playing in San Francisco around bars, and all of a sudden you're at A&M. Right, and it was, it was kind of a, a little bit nervous, nerve-wracking, but, but at the same time, we, we were pretty rehearsed and we knew we wanted it well I not completely rehearsed but we we knew we had something and and the and we had a producer that was a staff producer at A&M and he, you know it was his job to, to pull out of us what he could and uh, we didn't have any hits on the first record we had a long piece an 11 minute piece that was unheard of uh, it you know a, a, a that that 
much of an indulgent song with all this instrumental music called Ocean Breeze. And, and uh, it was just an unheard of thing to have a piece that long. But radio DJs loved it because it was long enough for them to, you know, put it on and they had 11 minutes to go outside or, you know, hit the head or go smoke a joint or whatever they did. And, and, and they got, they got, you know, FM radio really did like that song. So we, we got a lot of press on that. And, and then there weren't any singles on that first record, but that, that one, that one piece called Ocean Breeze definitely got some attention. And then we did the second record with a different producer and there was a little bit of chart action on it, but not not the kind of numbers that we needed. It wasn't until the third album that we hit with, with the title track, Place and Son of Men, What You Gonna Do When She Says Goodbye. And that, that's, when, that's when things really start changing for the band. Now, is there, a story, is there a story behind What You Gonna Do? Well, yeah, kind of. Um, there was a there was a, a gal that I was involved with, but, but I was breaking up with her. And we were having, you know, the nice thing about songwriting, and, and if you're writing with your partners, is, you know, you get to discuss stuff, and you're in each other's lives, and you're all helping each other with all kinds of stuff. But we were having a discussion about, you sure you want to break up with her? What are you going to do when she says, really says goodbye, you know? And boing, there it is. <laughs> That's what we were looking for. <laughs> and, uh, so that that was about that particular relationship, and uh, um, and the funny thing is, it didn't end there because it took it, it went into the next album with "Love Will Find a Way," which was about the same relationship, you know, and and uh, it it took that long to get, <laughs> to get past all that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's that's the deal. It's like out of those personal experiences. Yeah. So you're you're the the album with what you're gonna do, a place in the sun, hit 19 on the Billboard charts. Now, in the middle of that, original member left the band. Yeah, what a time to leave, huh? Yeah. <laughs> our, our original our original bass player, right when right when what you're gonna do was hitting, he told us he wanted to quit the band and go put a band together with his wife and do a record. And I'll tell you, one of the weirdest things about this whole deal was that A&M backed him to do that, which was really stupid. They should have been promoting him staying with the band and, you know, making more records. But anyway, they did a record and nothing happened with it. And then he went into obscurity. And uh, um, it's too bad because... You know, it really left us floundering. We had to find somebody to replace him, and we did, and and kept, you know, kept doing the gigs, and we had a great guy that, that filled in for him. Although uh, he wasn't as good a player as as as, as uh, powerful a presence as the original guy, Bud Cockrell. But um, but he but he he came at the right at the right time and kept, you know afforded us to keep going and, and that was our objective was to keep keep the band working now did you audition so, uh, did you audition a lot of guys yeah we had the whole 
There were quite a few. We had, a, you know, we were set up in a rehearsal place. We had people dropping by and trying out, you know. And, and then when we when we found this guy Bruce Day, we played a few songs, and he came in prepared, you know. And and, and he was just an absolute great guy. And he was a, he was a good live player and a good live presence on stage. And we had a lot of fun, you know, doing what we did and uh, presenting the shows with him he wasn't a good studio guy so the record the, the i forget we, um the uh, world's away album uh i played some bass and we got mike Picaro from the toto band to play bass and um but bruce was a good live guy he was better at live playing with those records um and then after uh on the I think the next record, we found this guy John Pierce in in uh, Los Angeles that was a real player's player and a funny guy and a lot of fun. So we got him. Say goodbye to Bruce. Um, and then, and then uh, John was with us for I don't know three years or so. And but now after after we've taken this, you know, then after so we did we we finished out our recording and and. I think the the seventh record was the last one, and uh, and then we we called it quits for a while, like twenty years, <laughs> and then we uh, we then we put it back together about ten years ago, and we had a different bass player, and then we got we met this guy Larry Antonino, I got him through a friend of mine that played in the band Chicago, a guy named Bill Champlin, and I called Bill one day and said, you know, he bass players, and he turned me on to this guy, so. We got him, and and uh, we've been this, in this format ever since. And he's a really, really wonderful player and great guy to hang with. That's the nice thing about our band; it's fun hanging out with everybody. We 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 genuinely have a good time, you know, with everyone. Well, I'm sure that yeah, I'm sure that's what keeps you guys going. Uh, even the new the new clip, you know, the new faction of the group. But I got to ask you, what was it like when Worlds Away just started? taking off and you were getting hit after hit what's that like as someone who you know the first album did didn't really chart the second album somewhat you know then you had a hit here hit here what's it like when all of a sudden you look and you're looking at every song you're releasing is climbing up the charts well i had this kind of a running joke with our manager bob brown uh you know we were watching songs you know climb and looking at some of the the gigs, you know, the dates that we booked and stuff. So I'd always say, well, are we famous yet? As the songs were kind of climbing, and Bob would go, nope, you're not famous yet. And then another week later, I'd say, are we famous yet? He'd go, nope, not yet. Yeah. And it went on for, for a couple of months, and then we got into the top 20 or the top 10, and I said, well, what do you think? He says, you're famous now, you know? <laughs> so, and it was, and it, and it really was amazing how, how much we heard it on the radio and no matter where we were and the response, I mean, all of a sudden, you know, people recognized us on the street. Uh, it's just, you know, famous people do have kind of a blessed life. They, they, get, they get better seating at restaurants and uh, I don't know, they get people, people help famous people, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting human condition, but, but it was very fun. It was extremely fun 
to uh, being a, a band that was, you know, making it at that age. And uh, we just really had a great time with it, I got to say. Now, do you remember the first time you heard one of your group songs on the radio? I remember exactly the first time. I was walking along Bridgeway uh, Street in Sausalito, California, right along the water. I was walking with a friend of mine, and I heard, from the first record, I heard a song called What Does It Take? Coming out of a, a uh, boombox, this guy was fishing down by the water, and he had his boombox there, and it was like, I said, what, 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 what am I hearing? What? And I turned, and I looked, and there was that little boombox sitting there on the rocks. I said, my God, that's us. We're on the radio. Holy cow. And I just, you know, I just couldn't believe it. It was just like, so, you know, it's like what you work for. But when it actually happens, it's like, wow, we're really there. You know, so things fell into place. It felt like they, it, it felt like events happened as they, as they were supposed to, you know, make a record, put it out, get some notoriety, go to work. You know, it felt like, it felt like it was do everything was happening the way it should, but when you think back on it now, in retrospect, I mean, what a blessing! What an absolute blessing that was to have, to have you know gone through that and experienced that, and to still to this day when we're playing gigs and and you know music fans turn out to hear the band and they they're all happy and smiling and it's like wow. This is really a great life, you know? Now, so, yeah. at that point, when you're making it big, you start playing like the Merv Griffin Show, you know, Dinosaur. What was it like for you guys to be on TV? Was it exciting? I mean, you even played American Bandstand, which, you know, American Bandstand, everybody watched. I always try to explain to younger people that there was only, like in Philadelphia, there's Channel 3, 6, 10, and maybe three UHF channels. But everybody watched American Bandstand. How did that? Right. How did that help your career? You know, Steve, it was like uh, it was. It, it made sense that we were on. It was a little. It was you know. We just did what what was naturally coming toward us, what every step of the way. But I will say that there there were a few moments at different times that we were nervous, um, and. You could tell. You could tell when, you, when I look back on those old videos. I thought, "Oh yeah, he's nervous." You could see it in his face, you know. And but I don't know. It was uh, those people were so gracious. I mean, I mean, kids today don't know who Dinah Shore was, but she was she was amazingly gracious, and so was Merv Griffin. He was he was he was just a such a nice guy, and really did enjoy the band, you know. And, um, all those guys, they, they just, uh, Mike Douglas and, and Dick Clark was totally nice. And, oh, he was funny to watch though with all those kids because he, he'd be like, he, he was trying to herd cats. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was crazy how, how he would have to yell at the kids to get them to stop doing one thing, pay attention because we're counting down here. Three, two, one. Okay. Yeah. Like, was, he was like really having to control a lot of stuff but he was great about it and he was certainly a nice guy to us I mean yeah those were absolutely amazing times now as a musician what was it like going from you know 
smaller crowds and the crowds getting bigger and then you guys are you know on top of the world because you have you know a huge album what does it change your performance like the first time you sit there and go holy crap there's a ton of people here does that make you nervous you know it's funny uh we 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 did we did some pretty huge shows and um you know we just we just played what was on the records you know we just we just played what we were supposed to play and you know you're always battling sound you're always trying to get your sound figured out on stage so that you can actually hear and play together you know and feel the grooves and and not be sidetracked by the size of the, of the venue or anything so and it's the same today i mean we go from we go from uh, clubs to performing arts centers to even you know big outdoor shows still and uh, it's always the same battle about sound on stage you know and once we get that dialed in then we you know we play our songs and have a good time so yeah now now how did you end up playing i know i read that you played the Sahara Tahoe in South Lake and you, you like broke Elvis Presley's record uh, attendance. How did you end up in a casino showroom? I think that might have come about through our management, through the guy I mentioned before, Bob Brown. Um, it just seemed like a, a, a natural step for us at that, at that juncture in, in, in the band's history. Um, I mean, we were playing all kinds of games, but that they they, uh, they asked us if we wanted to play there, and the money was really good at the time. That that was it was pretty crazy money for us. They put us up at a beautiful house. Oh, this is a great story. They put us up. They when it, when the gig was presented, we had the option of staying in the hotel, which was at the time it was Del Webb's High Sierra in Tahoe, or we could stay at a house just up on Kingsbury grade, you know, and, and, and then they'll shuttle us back and forth. Well, nah, let's stay at the hotel. So we, and, and it was, a, the, the, the engagement was two weekends. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, then you'd have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off, and then back on for a show Thursday, then two shows Friday, Saturday, and two shows uh, Sunday. So, so we did the show, the weekend show, and on the first weekend, and at one point I, I said, I want to go over and check the house. I want to see what that house is all about that, that, that you know, they were talking about. Well, I went up this, to this place. It was a mansion owned by Ibarachi, and the crew was staying in it because we didn't, none of the band guys wanted to stay there. And I walked in there, and they had a, they had a, a valet to handle any laundry stuff and keep the place clean. They had a, a, a chef came in to cook two meals a day that were just incredible meals. And I saw this setup and I said, all right, you guys, you're out of here as of tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I those guys, man, they kept, that was the best kept secret in rock and roll. They, when they got in that place, when the crew got in there, they said, all right, everybody keep quiet about this. Downplay this house completely. But when I went over there, it was like, oh, all right. Go back to the hotel, boys. We got the house from now on. It was classic. Oh my god! Now, now did, you, it was a, huh? did you play Tahoe again? Oh yeah, we 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 still play Tahoe now and then. But did you stay at the house after that first time? 
Yeah, we that that um, that gig repeated itself a couple of I don't know a couple of years, maybe three years. We everybody you know all the entertainers stayed there, and but <laughs> that was that was just a great moment. Whenever I run into any of those crew guys, we always have a laugh about that. But um, but that's uh, that's long gone. I think that place got sold and that that hotel changed hands and felt different now. Now, but we still play Tahoe. We played Caesars or some other place. Now you also played the Grand Ole Opry, and I believe you're the first rock band to play that. How did that come about? And what was, was that? What was that I like? I have no idea how that came about, but it's funny because now that I'm, I live in Nashville part time, and it's a funny thing that that our band was the first rock band to ever play the Grand Ole Opry. It was the new Grand Ole Opry. It wasn't the old, wasn't the old, you know, Opry, but. Uh, and what a room! What a what an incredibly beautiful, perfect room to play in. Um, but I don't know how that came about. But I was certainly happy to stand on that. There's a little circle on that stage uh, from the old original Grand Ole Opry that they they brought the they brought the the wood from that old stage and made a circle on the on the big new stage. And I I stood there just just reveling in, in you know all of the people over the you know, decades that have stood on that very place, you know, because I'm, I'm a real fan of country music and, uh, this is, this is where, you know, the home of it is. Now, was it intimidating being you were the first rock band? Because I know it's changed. I know a lot of rock musicians have moved to Nashville. I mean, everyone's moving there. I mean, it's just, right. it's the big it's Music City, but people know you live in L.A. And I lived in L.A. for years. You can't make a living in L.A. You're not getting uh, songwriting deals in L.A. But back then, it was so country-oriented. To be the first right. rock band, did you feel pressure thinking some people probably being skeptical? I mean, you see it now with people who like don't like new you know, country. Not really, Steve. I didn't, it wasn't like I felt like a pressure. I... Uh, as I remember, because um, it is quite a while ago, it, it just felt like a very special gig. You know, it's going to be our best. And and I didn't really put it together, like, why we were doing that. But, it, you know, it was a pretty neat thing. I got, I got more nervous playing here uh, a few months ago when I played at a local club here with Pablo Cruz because, um, uh, you know, there there's some players in this town that are just absolutely incredible. And, you know, whenever I run into them, they always go, oh, yeah, I love your band, you know. But come back here and play here. But we did well, and people loved it. We had a great night. But um, it's a little nerve-wracking playing here because the players are so absolutely incredible. But, like, like on Monday night, this coming, this coming week, I'm going to sit in with Vince Gill's uh, band, uh, the Time Jumpers. It's not his, it's not actually his band, but he plays in it. And um, I sat in with, in with him one one other time, and it it went surprisingly well. These guys played a song that I wrote that they learned in a nanosecond backstage before the before the next set, and and it was great. And, and the crowd loved it, and we all had a good time with it. Uh, so. They've always, whenever I run into any of them, they say, you should come back, let's do that song again, you know? So 
I'm going to go back Monday night and do it. Now, how did you end up in Nashville? I fell in love with a girl from here, and in fact, a really talented uh, singer, songwriter, player, uh, producer gal that she's she's had success, more success in Europe than here, but she's had success here. Her name's Jamie Kyle, spelled J-A-I-M-E, Jamie Kyle, K-Y-L-E. And she's, she wrote some hits for others uh, that people here would know. Um, like she wrote a song that Hart recorded called Stranded. And then she had another one that Faye Hill recorded called Wild One and um, Bed of Roses, two different songs that Faye Hill recorded. And uh, she's, oh, she's had songs by Air Supply and uh, Michael English, a few others. Um, and she's working on her record now that's going to be a really great record. So anyway, I fell, I fell in love with this gal. Uh, and uh, we, she's from here, so we, I just kept you know, coming back here to see her. And we finally ended up moving into a house here. That, that, uh, but we're here half the time and in California half the time. Now, why did you guys break up back in 85? You know what? We were just kind of floundering. We weren't getting anywhere. Corey and I weren't communicating as writers. We just kind of ran our course, and it, and it got it got uh, where it wasn't fun. And so we just let it go. And I I took off in different directions, and I joined a, a country rock band called Southern Pacific that was out of uh, was actually out of Nashville. Um, got signed. I think it got signed out of Warner Brothers Nashville, but it was a it was a very good band with two, uh, two guys from the Doobie Brothers and um, the bass player from Creedence Clearwater and a keyboard player from Crystal Gale's band. And uh, they were already formed. They'd already had some some success. And then I joined them, and we had uh, we had a couple number one singles off of one record and and a number nine off the same record. I don't know, we did pretty good with that. Now how did we you played with a lot of the what? No, how did you how find did them? How did you find those guys? Like how did what how did you meet them? Because it was I'm guessing they, they had, well I knew John and Keith from the old touring days with with Pablo and Doobie Brothers, but um our manager said this band he said there's a band, you know, McBee's in country band looking for a singer. And uh, they're having auditions. You ought to go down and try. So I flew to L.A. and they were having a cattle call kind of audition thing with video and, you know, learn the songs in front and come in and be ready to do it. And so I did and I got the gig. And uh, it was fun for a couple of years. Now, and one good record, yeah. Yeah, one good record. And then in, in 96, you guys, you and Pablo Cruz decided to do a partial reunion? Wow. You're, you're better at the dates than I am. I don't know if that was the date. Uh, is it, did, did you get that off of something? 96, huh? Yeah, it says 96, you guys reunited. You and uh, Cockrell. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bud and I had a band, and then we had some other players around it. Um, and you know what? We represented the songs really well. I had a, 
it was a great band. I had uh, another guitar player, which I always love. I've got two guitars. And uh, percussionist, great drummer and percussionist, and uh, uh, a couple guys from Oakland. They were a lot of fun. And, um, and then two backup singers. And so the songs were really well represented, but it wasn't the same energy. It wasn't the same chemistry as this original lineup that we have now. You know, I mean, this, as well as we did the songs, it still didn't have the magic that is the original guys together. When you put the original guys together, you get you get something extra. You know, and that's what we have now. Now, how did you guys get back to getting the original guys? Was it something that you missed each other or you called or something you saw one of your friends performing or someone said, hey, Pablo Cruz needs to get back together? How did it happen? Well, the, the funny thing is our drummer, Steve Price, was getting married. And this is 10 years ago, at least, maybe 11. And he was telling his wife about the band, about know what it was like and you know who he who he was you know as a, as a drummer you know the big time that we had and stuff and he thought god it'd be great to put the band together and just do a show so she could so my wife could see it so he called Corey and i and said could we get could we get some other guys and and like you know another a bass player and maybe another guy and, and just do a show so we said, yeah, it might be fun. So uh, we set up a show in Sacramento, and we got, God, I can't, excuse me, I can't even remember who they are now, um, but we got two guys to play bass and, and besides Corey, there was another at, at times another keyboard anyway we did a show we put a show together we rehearsed and actually put a set together and and response was so good and we enjoyed it so much that after the show we went to, we all went to this bar and had a couple of drinks and said let's keep this going let's do it again you know and, and you know we got the vibe going it was so cool but then you know we didn't have the right lineup but but we started working on getting the right lineup, and and we came in with a bass player that was uh, that was somebody that Corey worked with, who was a very talented musician, but not exactly a bass player. But he was he played bass with us for a couple of years, and then we found Larry, the guy I mentioned before. But it was uh, it was just because of Steve getting married and wanting to show his wife, you know, the kind of drummer that he was playing Pablo Cruz music that we were able to do it and uh, and from that point we, we said alright hiatus is over let's get to work now the new lineup and you guys tour a lot does it have the same feel and energy as the earlier lineup you know back in the day when you guys were making hits does it have that same feeling on stage or because everyone's matured and it's gotten older do you feel no, different it's, it's we definitely have, there's some of that, there's something magic about, about Steve and Corey and I together. And now, now that we've got Larry, Larry fills in, he's the closest thing. If we had found Larry 30 years ago, 
we'd have, we'd have been having a totally different discussion right now because he's he's so much like our original bass player, uh, but even better. He's a he's a really really monstrous player and a great singer and just a good totally good guy. You know, good guy to be on stage with. So the vibe is very much the same as the old days. Now, not quite as wild. It's not quite as wild. When I think about when I think back on those on some of those old days, it there was something um, untamed about it, and that was kind of one of the things that was good about it, I think. It was a little out of control. <laughs> well, that's always good. Now, how would you classify your music? Because, you know, some people say it's pop rock, some say it's soft rock, some say it's the big term now is, you know, yacht rock. How would you personally right. classify your music? Well, if I was talking to you from my own yacht, right. <laughs> I'd probably call it that. Unfortunately, I'm not. Um, you know, it's a tough call. Some of the, some of the music we do is is blue-eyed soul. Some of it is, you know, rock. Uh, some of it even approaches a, a slight bit of country. And um, so, I don't know. I've never really been able to categorize it in one word, honestly. It's just a lot of different things, but it's, it's Pablo Cruz music. <laughs> Now, I, I look, I'm looking through your discography. What are the Doofus Brothers? Oh, no. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's something we shouldn't talk about. Okay. <laughs> that, that, you know, I like to go surfing, and that's two of my buddies from high school and, and I go on surf trips to Central America or Hawaii, wherever we go. And, and, we call ourselves the Doofus Brothers, and, and we actually <clears throat> have, you know, on a laptop uh, computer, we've recorded a bunch of different songs, and they're really terrible. And they're, we take old tunes and write surf lyrics to them, and then and just do these, just the rudest recordings we can make. And uh, that's what the Doofus Brothers is. <laughs> now, okay, I'm going to ask you another question that's a different question, but I go to Rio, was on... World's Way, I believe. And right. how did you pick that song? I mean, you don't think Pablo Cruz playing Peter Allen. It's not one of those things you go, how did that come up? Right. Well, it came up because of management. <clears throat> Our manager thought, he thought it would be a good idea. Excuse me. And, um, and you know, I wasn't so sure. But, I mean, I went along with it. And, and Peter was great. I mean, he was he recorded with us in the studio at the record plant in, in the Sausalito, and he played uh, he played electric piano while Corey played the grand piano. And I don't know. It was it was a fun effort. We went to New York and saw him do his uh, his one man show on Broadway, which was incredible. And uh, I don't know. It just was it was one of those kind of a it came out of the out of the management end of things. Here you guys, there's a great idea, you know, record the song. Okay. So we did. And, you know, it was a party song. So people liked it, you know, people still like to 
They like to dance to it. Now, you, you tour pretty much. I mean, you know, you guys have a lot of dates for the next year. How do you choose where you're going to play? And do you like to stay more in California? Or, you know, because now you're in Nashville is probably different. But when you're in California, you probably wanted to stay there more. But how do you pick where you're going to play? And is there any cities that you want to play but you're not playing? Um, yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of places I'm sure we'd like to play that we haven't booked yet. But, you know... Honestly, it's like whatever we can route that makes sense, you know, is, doesn't beat us up too bad. To try to do a, to try to go across the country and do one show and then fly back, you know, you're traveling on a Friday, playing a Saturday, and coming back Sunday. That's three days out of your life. The money has to be a certain thing for you to do that, or, or you know, we don't take it. So, if you know, if the money's there, we're there. And, yeah. and, and also, if Southwest flies there, right. <laughs> we, we travel on Southwest a lot. <laughs> now, now, what are your crowds like these days? Because I always ask uh, musicians who've been playing for a long time that you know, you know, there was, believe me, there's probably some babies made to a Pablo Cruz song. I mean, let's not lie, because it was just cool music. So there's probably people who had their kid when they were con conceived during a song, so they probably bring their kid and the kid listens to it. What what's the age group in your crowd? Does it go from like eight well, to like seventy? Yeah, because of yeah, from from what you just said, you can imagine the parents show up and they bring their kids. I mean, it's amazing, and the kids are going, "Wow, those guys rock!" You know, it's far out that that we're getting, you know, anywhere from twelve years old to eighteen years old to, to twenty, and and you know, they're seeing these guys, their parents' age or older you know, rocking, and it's like, yeah, these guys know what they're doing. So our, our ages are, go from anywhere from 12 up to, up to 80, 90. I mean, I've, I've seen people that old there. Now, what song do you think gets the biggest reaction when you play it? What is the one that people, you know, you see it in their eyes? Because there, there, there are a bunch of hits, but there's got to be one or two that the crowds just flip over. Well, you know, the, the two hits, we'll find a way in what you're going to do, do real well. Um, but even before that, the, the instrumental Zero to 60 is, uh, that was, I think that was on the Lifeline album. That one gets, you know, huge response. Um, uh, oh, um, Cool Love from the last, or from, I think it was on the Reflector album. Like, I can't remember which record that's on. It's terrible. Uh, that gets a good response. I mean, everything gets a pretty good response, to be honest with you, Steve. The band performs them pretty well. Now, so, what do you encore with? Um, well, if we don't if we don't play in the set, we'll 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 go off after Love will Find a Way and come back with what you're going to do. And sometimes we'll sometimes we put Ocean Breeze in there at the end, depending on what kind of audience we're playing for, what kind of venue. Um, and we've got I Want You Tonight, which is another song. Sometimes we'll stick that on the end for one more song, you know. Now, question, you know, because you've been doing it for a long time. Do you feel like you've matured as a performer? I mean, do you feel, you know, you, you're, you're wiser on stage now? And do you sing any of the songs differently because you've grown older? We're definitely, we are definitely more seasoned performers. We're we're better uh, at delivering the songs. We're better at 
talking to the crowd and you know having a <clears throat> an entertainment relationship with the crowd yeah we're we're definitely a different band in that respect yeah way better you know we're at this age of the game we're we're entertaining you know and that's what you got to do you got to entertain now do you still write oh yeah sure now can we expect a new album from you guys? God, man, it's that's hard to say. Um, you know, there's a lot of great bands putting out albums these days, and nobody gives a care. So I don't know. You know, it might it'd be fun. I'd love to do it, but that, it's too early for me to say that we'd do another record. I, I, I'd be easier saying I'll do a solo record before I do a Pablo record. Now, will I you? Don't know. Do you play any solo shows in Nashville? Um, I do I do some singer songwriter stuff here in town, and with my wife, we we have a, a thing we do that's pretty good. You know, we present each other's songs, and uh, and it goes over really well. Yeah. Now, now, how how has the music in, in your eyes? How has the music industry changed since when you started out to now? Well, it's not as exciting. I mean, uh, I'm sure it is for for, you know, the, the handful of Jonas Brothers or or Miley Cyrus's or whoever else is in the, you know, in the public eye right now, Taylor Swift and that sort of thing. But it, but it is a different world in that, you know, in the old days, you'd make a record, you put it out, you get help from the record company to push the thing, and you go out and tour on it, and, and you sell records out of, out of the stores, you know. That's an old dinosaur model that doesn't exist anymore. And um, now it's all about online presence. You know, you record your songs, you put it online, and you don't make any money from it. You go out and and do the circus life and uh, make money on your shows. But I don't know, man. It's a, it's a different world for musicians to try to get over. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure... Um, before What's we, that? I said I'm sure. Before we go, I want to ask you this: the, your merch. Does your merch really sell good at the uh, shows now? I mean, it always sold. And do people <clears throat> still appreciate how cool the logo is? Yeah, yeah. People like getting those shirts and 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 uh, you know hats and cups and whatever. Yeah, the logo is great and it and it uh, it sells nicely. We don't always have merch with us. Um, which is something that we're working on changing because we want to be able to sell, you know, you know, shirts and stuff. But yeah, it's a it's a cool logo. In fact, you know, if you wear that, if you wear a Pablo shirt down the street, somebody's going to say, "Ah, I remember that band. They were great." <laughs> you're you're going to hear, com you know, you're going to get the comments. You know, it just happens. Well, I, I, I should probably I should wear one myself. I haven't had a Pablo Cruz T-shirt on in years. I'm gonna. I think I'm going to get one. You have to. If you go to your website, yeah. If you go to your website, if you go to your website, there's shirts. And people go to the website. It's pablocruz.com. It's a great website. There's some really cool photographs, different the history of the band. But um, that would be the best. I would tell you that would go, that would go viral. Everyone would be like, oh my god, oh my god, look, he's wearing yeah. a Pablo Cruz shirt. <laughs> yeah, we're all wearing the same shirt. That'd be good. Anyway, oh, man. I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, Steve. Uh, you know, my I, pleasure. You're, you're a great band, as I said. I, I remember getting Worlds Away, you know, and I think my brother may have had the earlier ones. 
And uh, so, yeah, people, so go to pablocruz.com. If they're in your town, please go see them. Also, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 745 episodes there. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Follow me on Twitter, at coopertalk. And if you want to listen to my show, go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. So I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.